This podcast covers mature, intense, morbid, and sometimes just scary stuff. Listener discretion is advised. Are you depressed? Do you suffer from anxiety and migraines? If the answer is yes, you may need a lobotomy. Come on down. It only takes 10 minutes. Welcome to 30 Morbid Minutes. This is the podcast where we cover topics of a morbid, macabre, dark, and downright grisly nature. And sometimes we perform at-home lobotomies on each other. Jesus. Occasionally. <laughs> wow, way to, way to get right into it, <laughs> Yeah, way to wake up people in the morning. Woo! I'm Elise Willems. I'm Jessica Vasami. Rosemary Kennedy was born on September 13th, 1918. She was the only daughter of what was the Kennedy dynasty. Her brothers, Bobby and John F. Kennedy, JFK, would later go on to live and die in infamy. Rosemary was physically slower than the rest of the kids. It took her a while to learn to walk, and once in school, she was labeled with intellectual disabilities. Despite this, she lived a fairly normal life. She kept a diary, went to dances, and was even invited to the royal court when she lived in London as a teenager. Rosemary was adorable, too. She had dark brown hair and apple cheeks. But after Rosemary returned to the United States from England, her family believed that she was what they considered to be on the decline. At boarding school in Philadelphia, Rosemary flew into violent rages and was sent to live in a convent school. I would fly into violent rages, too, if I was sent to live in a convent school. So well, yeah. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't before long that she started sneaking out of the convent at night. Also understandable. Mm-hmm. The nuns thought that she was having sex and reported it back to her family. Rosemary also experienced violent seizures and mood swings. Her parents became increasingly frustrated. Her father, Joseph Kennedy, was especially worried. If Rosemary's behavior became more public, it could seriously tarnish the Kennedy name. And if you know anything about Joseph Kennedy, you know that he was not the most upstanding of men. Not super great, yeah. No. And Joseph Kennedy learned of a new psychosurgical procedure that claimed it would curb his daughter's behavior and provide her peace and calm. It was known as a lobotomy, and they were starting to be advertised everywhere. A one-fix-all treatment for schizophrenia, panic disorders, OCD, chronic pain, violent outbursts, PTSD, ADD, Alzheimer's, and so on. No joke. Quote, unmanageable loved ones. Yeah. The advertisements showed before photos where the patients displayed twisted facial expressions, like really upset looking. And then in the after ones, the patients were now magically calm and subdued. And they were kind of graphic, even showing imagery of a needle being put through an eye. For some reason, people thought that this type of advertisement was supposed to be persuasive. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I'd be terrified. I'd yeah. just, if I saw that, oh, Me wow. too. But it convinced Joseph Kennedy. He arranged for 23-year-old uh, Rosemary to be lobotomized. And get this, he didn't even ask his wife. She had no idea about it. No, and also, she's 23 years old. She's an adult mm -hmm. in the eyes of the law, but somehow her father was able to do this to her. In 1941, a doctor gave Rosemary a mild tranquilizer. Even so, she was awake for the procedure. And then the doctor went through the top of her skull, because this is how lobotomies were done at this time, and made an incision in her brain on both sides near the frontal lobe. Yeah, lobotomy just sounds like it's something from like a horror movie. It just, just it's so strange yeah. to me. 
And I know that we apply that kind of meaning to, to the word now because we know what the mm-hmm. what it is. But and we're we're gonna talk about what the word, the breakdown of the mm-hmm. like nomenclature is in a little bit. But yeah. Yes. So the incision that was near her frontal lobe, they did it with an instrument that looked like a butter knife. And the doctor started moving the metal piece around in her brain, swirling it and jabbing. Yeah. And then so what they do uh, or what they did was they would ask you to recite something so they can gauge your mental awareness. So one of the doctors asked her to recite the Lord's Prayer, then sing God Bless America. It's like this twisted game of hot and cold and Rosemary's answers informed the doctors of how long or how vigorously they should move the tool. When she became incoherent, they stopped. It was immediately apparent that the lobotomy caused Rosemary immense harm. She left the surgery with a mental capacity of a two-year-old. She lost her motor skills, was unable to walk or speak, and even lost control of her own faculties. Besides what they did to her cognitive abilities, Rosemary was likely also in an extreme state of depression. But as we've already seen, the Kennedy family reputation was much more important than their daughter's well-being. Making a fuss could put John's presidential aspirations at risk. Thus, a long history of denial and the Kennedy family began. Mm -hmm. So following the lobotomy, Rosemary was immediately institutionalized. She was sent to a private psychiatric hospital 90 miles north of New York City and then later moved to another institution in 1947 where she would spend the rest of her life. The Kennedy family effectively removed all evidence of Rosemary and then just cut her out. It took 20 years for Rosemary's mother to finally visit her. Her father never once visited her. Surprise, surprise. And neither of her brothers even knew where she was. And it it took them 20 years to find out that she had even had a lobotomy. Really sad. Mm -hmm. When John F. Kennedy ran for president in 1958, the family explained that she was simply a recluse and just didn't want to be outside. By 1961, they were claiming that Rosemary was born with a mental disability. They didn't want to tell the truth that she was lobotomized. In 1961, Joseph Kennedy had a stroke that left him unable to walk or speak. And that's when JFK and Bobby found out where their sister was. She was living in Jefferson, Wisconsin at a hospital for the disabled in a private cottage located on the grounds. Her father bought it for her along with a car so she could go on rides. That's nice, I guess. Yeah, it's like, okay, (laughs) doesn't really make up for it. But um, Rosemary's lobotomy would not be publicly revealed until 1987. Once her father died in 69, Rosemary was kind of allowed, quote unquote, back into the family again. She regained the ability to walk, but with a limp, and she never regained the ability to speak. Rosemary died in 2005 at the age of 86. Her story remains a cautionary tale of denial, medical torture, familial abuse, and a testament to what happens when those suffering from mental illness go unsupported. Yes, and I think she is like the defining patient of the lobotomy, but it happened to so many, so many people. So how did it come to pass that the lobotomy and often non-consensual surgery, especially as we just saw with Rosemary, was performed on an estimated tens of thousands of Americans during the 20th century? I'm ready to find out because before this episode that we were diving Mm -hmm. into lobotomies, I really did not know much about this. I did not even know about Rosemary Kennedy until researching it. So I'm I'm ready to dive in. (laughs) I mean, there's more that I, I knew about her, but there's more that I definitely learned about Warren Baxter. I didn't know about. We talk about him a little bit later. 
Yeah, I'm just saying that even hers as the most popular one, I just was not, when I think of lobotomies, yeah, I associate it with like horror stories, like horror films yeah. and everything, which, and, and I know it's a real thing, obviously, but I just didn't know much about it. And mm-hmm. as far as like the real medical field. Yeah. And I, and I think so much of it comes down to that society tends to think of mental illness and disease as a problem that needs to be overcome, not worked with, but mental illness is truly not that straightforward. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Causes and symptoms vary and treatments for mental illness depend on many factors like environment and genetics. Mm -hmm. And in Western culture, like historically, we look to medical experiments and hypotheses and the experimental path forward is not always pretty. There are many treatments that have thankfully been lost to history, like bloodletting and rotation therapy, which is when somebody spins around until they're mental illness is gone. I think we bring that one back. <laughs> I just like, I don't mean to laugh, but like, it's just kind of funny to think about. I just picture Homer Simpson lying on his <laughs> side, spinning, going, ooh. <laughs> like, yes. Like, yeah. Um, but yeah, yes, it's not funny. And grounding ourselves here, in hindsight, lobotomy, indisputably torturous, unethical, cruel, but not too long ago, it was considered like the breakthrough answer. Yeah, weird. It was developed as an invasive neurological treatment for various psychiatric disorders, ranging from epilepsy to schizophrenia to depression. The actual procedure is painful and intense. Yes, painful. You could feel it. And while the original intended purpose was to reduce symptoms of mental disorders, what it actually did, what we saw with Rosemary, was strip the patient of their personality and their intellect. And these early 20th century doctors considered this a worthwhile loss as long as the person was, quote, cured of their mental illness. Yeah, especially when you consider that women had it done more than men. It's like, oh, we definitely find suppressing the vitality of women, the Mm -hmm. vibrance of women, keeping them in line. Um, But, you know, consider that at the height of the lobotomy's popularity, the alternatives in medicine were kind of nil, right? We didn't mm-hmm. really have prescription medications that you could use to mitigate your mental health. And hospitals were pretty overcrowded and underfunded and really like horrible places. Yeah. Of course, we know now that the consequences of a lobotomy greatly outweigh the benefits. Post-lobotomy, the patient has reduced self-control, reduced self-awareness, reduced responsiveness, and no spontaneity. Nothing is funny. Nothing is sad. It's just blank. Mm -hmm. Patients were usually also unable to live alone following the procedure. You've got decreased cognition and they're detached from society. There was no empathy really uh, following a lobotomy. Yep. Not to mention being emotionally stunted with the mindset of a child. Lobotomy specialist Walter Freeman coined the term, quote, surgically induced childhood, end quote which is like a big thing for the guy who's a proponent (laughs) to Mm -hmm. call it. And we're going to come back to Freeman uh, because you might have heard from him. He's the guy that toured it with his van across America that people call the Lobotomobile. (laughs) Um, My God. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a lot about early 20th century medicine on the show and how it was kind of the Wild West. Doctors were throwing everything at the wall to see if it would stick. It was considered a budding time for the psychiatric field. Mm -hmm. Early 1900s, insane asylums and mental hospitals were bleak places. People suffering from mental illness just got locked away in horrible conditions and often against their will. Yeah, and this wasn't a cure by any means. And as doctors focused more and more on the physical brain as the cause of the mental illness, the more hubris they had about messing with it. 
As early as 1888, Swiss psychiatrist Gottlieb Burkhardt, definitely not saying any of that right, (laughs) had been experimenting with modern human psychosurgery, which sounds scary. He was under the impression that mental illness was organic and located in certain parts of the brain. As a result, he began removing people's prefrontal cortexes. Lord of God, if people, if I went to him and I was like, I have ADHD and I have anxiety and depression, he'd be removing my prefrontal. No, (laughs) no. (laughs) I like that that's his response for everything. (laughs) Gotta take out that prefrontal cortex. I I apologize. Oh my God, no. That's horrific. Yeah, my toe hurts. Prefrontal (laughs) It's gotta go. Take out the PFC. Oh, geez. By deliberately creating lesions right between the motor region of the temporal lobe, Birkenhart believed that he could control discrete mental faculties that would cause a transformation in behavior. Yeah, and it was 1888, so his tools were crude, to say the least. In December of that year, he cut into the brains of six people. Following surgery, it was recorded that two had no change, two patients became quieter, one person had epileptic convulsions and died, and, oh, one patient improved. (laughs) Um, And what what he meant by improved, we don't know and, you know, are skeptical of, obviously. Yeah. Wow. With perhaps an inflated 50% success rate, he presented his new form of surgery. However, he was met with open hostility by his fellow researchers. He immediately stopped performing the surgery. And these criticisms came again in 1912. Neurologists wrote, We have quoted this data to show not only how groundless, but also how dangerous these operations were. We are unable to explain how their author, holder of a degree in medicine, could bring himself to carry them out. So he got called out. Absolutely. But humanity has a real hard time learning from its past failures. Mm -hmm. So naturally, this wasn't the end of the story. We'll find out how the lobotomy caught on with the mainstream public after a word from our sponsors. Thirty Morbid Minutes is sponsored by BetterHelp. Jessica, you and I both have times where we struggle. Absolutely. Is that fair to say? I think it's very fair to say. Anything and everything in life, yes. We might deal with stress from work or have sleep issues or just have relationships where we're not really sure how to navigate them. Oh, yeah. I mean, for me recently, I've been having a lot of sleep issues. But honestly, what's been helping is I literally told my therapist the other day that I'm having sleep issues. And she's like, well, let's get to the bottom of that, because sometimes it could just be like your sleep patterns are weird, but also there could be something deeper going on. And what do you know? There's something deeper going on. (laughs) Very, very (laughs) thankful for therapy to help me understand that, because surprisingly, I am sleeping better now. So you're saying that therapy has helped you. Abs- oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. And if you think that others could benefit from it, they might want to give BetterHelp a try. Yes, absolutely. Like if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's a good kind of like, if you're not sure if you've never done therapy before, I think BetterHelp is honestly the perfect little segue into the therapy world. Yes, because they help find a therapist for you. They do. And it's entirely yeah. online. So if you don't want to leave the comfort of your home, that's okay. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited for your schedule. Mm -hmm. And it can take a lot of kind of groundwork to find a therapist that's right for you. BetterHelp helps you with this by giving you a questionnaire that helps you get matched with the right therapist for you. And if, if they're not the right one, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Yes. So... 
Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash 30MM today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash 30MM. 30 Morbid Minutes is also brought to you by Hatch. Jess, we work jobs that are pretty demanding. Absolutely. Can they can be long days. They can be fun days. Mm-hmm. Okay. We got a lot of work and play going on. Mm-hmm. We also have robust social lives, I think, kind of. <laughs> it's it's subjective. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But sometimes I do think that prioritizing quality sleep, we can, you know, let that fall to the wayside and you need a little bit of help with your self-care routine. You do. And part of, you know, self-care is is getting quality good sleep. And that I mean when you don't get quality good sleep, that has a huge effect on the next day. It has a huge effect on even like weight Your loss brain. and weight gain. Yeah, everything. Uh-huh. As someone who has struggled with sleep stuff, my brain just is like jelly if I don't sleep well. Yes. And there's something that's been introduced to my life thanks to this podcast that I am so, so grateful for because I love it. Yes, it is the Hatch Restore 2 as your bedside sleep guide, your ally in rest. It is this innovative all-in-one like dream machine. Mm-hmm. It's a sophisticated sound machine, light and alarm clock, beautifully designed for your bedside table. Yes, it's so good looking. It too. is. It's it's like, look, this, this is not your mama's alarm clock. It's okay. Not. The hatch is a whole experience designed to help you sleep better. And oh my gosh, the first evening that I used it, and then, you know, I listened to some soothing sounds as I would nature sounds as I was falling asleep, a thunderstorm. Yes, that's mine. I woke up and it's like a sunrise next mm-hmm. to you because the light slowly changes and it sort of is supposed to get in tune with your natural circadian rhythm. And I woke up feeling more rested than I have in years. And that's that's not an exaggeration. That is not um that that is how I felt that morning. I couldn't believe it. This is good for you because yeah, you do not sleep no. well. And and what I love about this is yes, it is it's super um you can personalize it to whatever fits well with you while it's also guiding you to a better sleep routine. Like mm-hmm. I do that thing where um I forget what it's called, where it's like sleep procrastination, where you haven't done everything you oh, want yeah. in your day, so you're just staying yeah. up late. But <laughs> I have my uh, Hatch Restore 2 set up to where it's like at 10 o'clock, it's like, okay, if you aren't already in bed trying to doze off by now, it's starting to like play the thunderstorms. It's trying to get me like ready to go to sleep. And it's mm-hmm. a reminder of like, let's have a better nighttime routine. And I go to sleep listening to either the thunderstorms or the train ride. And I wake I up to the train ride. I love the train ride. I love oh the train gosh. ride. It makes me feel like I'm on the Hogwarts train ride. But anyway, <laughs> I have occasionally I've been just in bed reading and I just put it on just to have some like soothing noise. I yes. I do feel like it's it's just getting me feeling relaxed. I love it. I love it too. And <sighs> the good thing here is right now Hatch is offering our listeners $20 off your purchase of a Hatch Restore 2 and free shipping at hatch.co slash 30mm. Yes. So sleep deeply and wake gently with the Restore 2. Go to hatch.co slash 30mm to get $20 off and free shipping. That's hatch.co slash 30mm. So yes, the lobotomy, despite being criticized by those in the medical community, was not completely abandoned. By 1937, the brain experiments began again. 
A neurologist living in fascist Italy named Dr. Pusep established a center which specialized in leukotomy. Before the lobotomy, there was the leukotomy, which is the cutting of white nerve fibers in the brain in order to treat mental illness. By 1935, a neuroscientist named John Fulton had already performed brain surgery on two chimps by completely removing their frontal lobes. Becky, one of the chimps, changed so much after the surgery that the neuroscientist said it was like she joined a cult of happiness. First time I've ever heard that term. Yeah, I want what Becky had. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Fulton presented his experiments at the Congress of Neurology in London, and that's where Portuguese neurologist Antonio Egas Moniz was inspired. Uh, In the Q&A portion, Moniz asked Fulton if he could perform this surgery on humans. Uh-oh. Yeah, apparently this startled Fulton. He replied, the surgery was too formidable to apply to human subjects, but that did not stop Fulton from later taking credit and allowing himself to be labeled as the father of the lobotomy. And like, Moniz did not care, okay? He was too focused on his own research and firmly believed that people's brains could uh, be cured of mental illness by having portions removed. Makes complete sense. Uh, in Portugal... On November 12th, 1935, throwing caution and ethics to the wind, he performed the first ever leucotomy on a human. Four years later, in 1939, Moniz would be shot multiple times by a patient. He survived, but was thereafter paralyzed. If you're shot by a patient, I would have to look inward after that. Absolutely. (laughs) Ask, am I the problem? Yes. And people started paying close attention to his experiments Uh, In 1937, a doctor named Amaro Fiamberti proudly credited himself with improving upon the procedure. And his big idea was go through the eye sockets. Not an improvement in my opinion. (laughs) But okay. I don't know why I was laughing at it. Um, Yeah. In Fiamberti's method, the surgeon enters through a layer of thin orbital bone in the socket with a syringe-like tool, then injects the frontal lobes with formalin or alcohol. Now, FYI, formalin's like a formaldehyde solution. Yeah. To do this, he used a leucotome. It's a very, very long needle-like surgical instrument. So they would insert the leucotome and then rotate it, cutting the core tissue in the brain. Um, then you take it out and you do it on the other side. Basically, it cores a person's brain like an apple. This device actually won a Nobel Peace Prize. The recipient, uh, none other than neurologist Moniz. No. 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 I see this no. And I'm like, no. <laughs> As the 1940s approached, Fiamberti's eye socket method was noticed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I was just noticing you and uh, your fun <laughs> eye socket method. Noticing by, you with my eyes. Yeah, yes. by American physician, Dr. Walton Freeman. We uh, alluded to him earlier. He's kind of like the mad Dr. Frankenstein of this whole operation. <laughs> Thank, wow, can't wait. Yeah, Freeman uh, admired Moniz and considered him a mentor. He once said if he had never met Moniz that he would never have performed lobotomies. I wish they'd never met. Yeah. (laughs) Dr. Freeman um, was not actually able to perform surgeries, okay, too, because he was a neurologist, not a neurosurgeon. Mm. So he had to, like, find a bud. In 1936, he enlisted (laughs) neurosurgeon Dr. James Watts to help him with experiments. Yeah, but they what? had to work on a group to project together in school. <laughs> I love it. You're like, he had to find a friend to help yeah. him. 
It's like when you're when you're moving and you need somebody with a truck to help you move your dresser. Yep. Yes, yes. In this but case, this is a lobotomy. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Watson Freeman worked together closely, modifying the eye socket procedure, but only slightly, and then renaming it the lobotomy. Mm-hmm. This is where we get into the etymology here of the term. So it's it's Greek, you know, lobos, Greek for lobe. And tome, to cut or slice. Yeah, so they're like pretty on the nose there. Mm-hmm. On September 14th, 1936, the first new version of the lobotomy was performed on 63-year-old Alice Hood Hammett by Watts under the direction of Freeman. So again, like Freeman's just hanging on the side being like cut there, cut there, because <sighs> dude can't actually do this himself. Yeah, even though Alice had a massive convulsion, the lobotomy was considered successful. Her husband said that she behaved more normally than ever before, whatever that means. It's like, oh, he she did everything you said. And I was going to say, did she yeah. cook your dinner and she cleaned and she yeah. did everything you wanted? Yeah. Mm-hmm. By 1942, this dynamic duo <laughs> had performed <laughs> around 200 lobotomies. Wow. I just picture them like best buds, high five in after. Sickos. Oh, man. Honestly, like. They considered their numbers pretty good by the standards of the times. Wow, a 63% race? Who's who's ju- <laughs> judging this percent rate? <laughs> like who's who know who's deeming it a success? That's what I want to know when they're like yeah. 63% success rate. It's like, yeah, if you guys are saying it, sure. Sure. Yeah. And because of all of this, lobotomies were getting more popular and and considered a legitimate treatment for psychiatric diseases. Yeah, in 1943, uh, playwright Tennessee Williams' sister, Rose, had a lobotomy, which was sanctioned by her mother. And guess what? Rose lost much of her personality, and uh, Tennessee was pretty pissed at mom for the rest of their lives. Yeah, it seems like a common thing, like parents sending their children for non-consensual lobotomies was, horrifyingly enough, pretty common. Yeah. 12 year old, 12 years old, Howard Dully was ordered to have a lobotomy by his stepmother who considered him unbelievably defiant, specifying he wouldn't go to bed. Darn kid. Yeah. Needs the lobotomy. Yeah. It's like, what an arbitrary non-issue to just ruin someone's (sighs) life over. Yeah. Mm. But back to uh, Freeman (laughs) and Waltz. (laughs) Yeah. The dynamic duo. Yeah. Yeah, so they were riding high on their success. Notable families were also considering lobotomy as a form of treatment for their family members. So Freeman and Watts were ecstatic when they got a phone call in 1941 from the Kennedy family to perform a lobotomy on their daughter, Rosemary. I just picture like Freeman answering the phone and he's like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And then he puts his hand over the receiver and he returns to Watts and he's like, it's the Kennedys. Jesus. God, they want us to do a lobotomy. Like, oh and then, my God. you know, Watts is like, oh my God, oh my God. Like, we'll tell them we're busy today. We don't want them to seem like we're desperate. This you know? is like a comedy movie on the Just, works. This is a dark comedy right now. Them as, yeah, them as teenage girls getting excited <laughs> over, um, yeah. Yeah, and obviously, not a joke. We know this did not go well. Um, but again, these sickos, Freeman and Watts, they considered it a success, even though they severely messed up. Between 1940 and 1944, Freeman and Watts performed 684 lobotomies together until 1947, when a fiery feud would lead to a very bitter ending. Oh my God, drama. <laughs> See, Trouble yes. in paradise. Drama. Yeah. What Watts didn't know was that Freeman was doing his own experiments in secret. Behind his now, back. And remember, Freeman, not a surgeon, needed to bring in Watts to like be his surgical buddy. He didn't have the background to be digging around in people's brains. No, no. 
Freeman would eventually come clean, though, thankfully. Freeman told Watts that he had performed his new lobotomy on 10 patients without his knowledge in his office with an ice pick. Damn, that's cold. Elise, an ice pick. Yes, it is cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Freeman was like, okay, don't be mad, but I'm thinking that we could make this an in-office procedure that could be performed by anyone. Yay! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, like, the whole intention was that, yeah, you could do it without anesthesia or an operating room or even being a neurosurgeon. Mm. <laughs> and that would make it a perfect solution to a limited hospital budget. In order to simplify the procedure, Freeman needed to make some changes. So he devised what's known as the transorbital lobotomy. Yeah, the initial way that Watson Freeman did it was they went through the top of the head. That's what happened to Rosemary. Mm -hmm. But since that procedure was often performed without anesthesia, the doctors would use electroconvulsive therapy to seize the patient into unconsciousness. In order to perform Freeman's new transorbital lobotomy, you needed to use a tool called the orbitoclast, a.k.a. the ice pick. Um, the physician, if they were actually even one, uh, would place the orbitoclast under the eyelid against the top of the eye socket. Then they would use a mallet to drive the ice pick through the thin layer of bone straight into the brain. So instead of coring the frontal lobes or injecting the brain with alcohol like they did before, uh, this lobotomy punctured the frontal lobes and then they swirled the needle like an egg beater for about egg minutes, to put it crudely. <laughs> I can't believe you said egg minutes. Did you I mean say egg minutes? You did. I didn't know if that was a joke. Eight minutes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I meant eight minutes. <laughs> okay. Yep. 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 But yeah, they could do it in minutes, right? Yeah. 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 According to Freeman, the transorbital lobotomy was fast, effective, and cheap, a breakthrough in mental health research. Mm, yeah. Breakthrough in quotes. Mm -hmm. On January 17th, 1946, Freeman performed his first transorbital lobotomy on Sally Ellen Ionesco in his office in Washington, D.C. Sally was a 29-year-old housewife suffering from depression and suicidal tendencies. The Ionesco family said Sally's depression seemed to go away after the quick lobotomy. Sally, who was once suicidal, frantic, and depressed, was demure, calm, and quiet. Freeman considered this a success. Yeah, and in the public's perception, you know, as it was pushed, the idea of a transorbital lobotomy was becoming very normalized as an operation, like getting a tooth pulled. Wow. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. the, the transorbital uh, lobotomy became the common one that even famous people sought out. Yeah, so Warner Baxter, the highest paid actor in Hollywood in 1936 and the second person to receive the Best Actor Prize, he went and got a transorbital lobotomy. Baxter developed pretty bad arthritis by the 1940s. He tried everything and finally, desperate, sought a lobotomy since it supposedly treated chronic pain. Yeah, and so he gets one and it treats the pain in a way, big quotation marks here, because after the lobotomy, you know, he didn't complain about the arthritis anymore, uh, but he couldn't really do anything. He experienced seizures and memory loss, became semi-catatonic, and couldn't recognize the people he'd known for years. He died a couple months later of pneumonia at 62, not a direct result of the lobotomy, but likely because he was not tending to his health due to the state that he was in. By 1949, lobotomies peaked in the U.S. That year, 5,074 were performed. By the end of 1951, 18,608 people had been lobotomized. That's just way too many people. Way mm -hmm. too many. Yeah. Uh, 3,500 of these lobotomies were either performed or supervised by Freeman. An estimated 490 people died in his care from hemorrhaging or complications to the procedure. 
There's even one story, a really gross one, about Freeman stopping to pose for a photo during a lobotomy while the ice pick was in someone's brain. And that patient died due to the ice pick being lodged too far into his frontal lobe. Probably because he was too busy taking a picture. Yeah. An estimated 40% of the nearly 18,000 lobotomies were performed on gay men as a form of conversion therapy. So sickening. Statistically, lobotomies were performed on more women than men. A study from 1951 found that 60% of the lobotomies uh, were done on women. In Canada, that's a bit higher, 74%. Ever the showman, Freeman only grew bolder taking his cheap and quick lobotomies on the road. He traveled across the country doing many in mental institutions while spreading his doctrine. Yeah, he did that thing where he rode across the country in his van 11 times. And I know he said, like, people called it the lobotomobile. Um, he didn't call it that. That's a kind of a myth that he got in on the, the fun of it and was like, yeah, hop in my lobotomobile. I, I wish that somebody would have, like, because looking at him as a person, like, you have something wrong with your brain. Yeah. You are a men- you have mental yeah. problems. Jeez. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Look in the mirror, honey. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> in July 1952, Freeman performed 228 transorbital lobotomies in a two-week period in West Virginia for a state-sponsored lobotomy project called the Operation Ice Pick. God, they're giving it, like, cool code names. I, I dislike this dude. But by this time, the lobotomy as a form of psychiatric treatment was starting to wane. Thank God. The invention of antipsychotropic drugs like Thorazine and antidepressants made them less of an attractive treatment. This coupled with Freeman's mortality rate, lack of interest in the actual science of the brain, and his general arrogance would catch the negative attention of the public. He was really interested in media attention and just came across as reckless. Yeah, the the lobotomy ultimately declined in the 1950s. Again, like lack of evidence in the procedure finally caught up with quacks like Freeman. He moved to Sunnyvale, California in 1954 after realizing that the excitement of the lobotomy era was coming to an end. But as we know, that didn't stop him from lobotomizing people like young Howard Dulley in 1960. 1960, so soon. Yeah. Um, He performed the last lobotomy in the U.S. in 67 on one of his longtime patients, Helen Mortensen, She died from a brain hemorrhage after the procedure. And then after that, uh, he was just completely banned from performing lobotomies on patients. Even the lobotomies are frowned upon. The U.S. never officially banned the practice with like a few reported procedures taking place in the 1980s. Wild. Yeah. Yeah, And then today there's kind of a, a cousin of the lobotomy that is apparently still performed called the cingulotomy where doctors take a gamma knife and they create this lesion in the part of the brain that associates chronic pain. Unlike the lobotomy, it's done in a very precise manner. Yeah, the lobotomy is an unfortunate moment in the history of mental health treatment. Only in hindsight are we able to, like, see how procedures like the lobotomy, like, do not help people suffering from mental illness. Yeah. Um, And, you know, we can only hope that, obviously, humanity continues to learn from past mistakes and no longer does things like state-sponsored lobotomy-a-thons. Lobotomy. I think that's, we can all agree, like in the way that public hangings are no longer a fun thing to go do on a Saturday afternoon. Like maybe we don't do. Yeah. Uh, there's a like part this. of me that thinks like for, there's, I know there has been a couple with like Watson Freeman where they've been like, oh, there have been some people that improved, but I feel like in your gut, the majority of the people 
were either not improving, got worse, something bad happened, and they're improving in their brain. I think that they were just like, you had to be convincing yourself of that. Like, there's yeah. no way you thought and that this was actually doing good. Yes. And who's saying they're improving? Exactly. Is it the patient or is it the person that wanted to suppress them? Yes. You know, so it's, yeah, it's all a pretty dark and sickening history. So, yeah, I think it was Alice where she said her, uh, her husband was like, oh, she just became more calm or quiet. That is like a bad mm-hmm. negative side effect of the lobotomy. So that, so yeah. I guess his, her husband just saw that as like, oh, she's being more docile. She's just being more chill. Yeah, like, no. You're subjugating yeah. her more. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a tool yeah. right, that you can use against people. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, Rosemary Kennedy, it's like, well, we don't want her to tarnish the family yeah. name. So mm-hmm. better, you know, make her uh, completely dependent on us and not her own person and able to, you know, have autonomy and live a life. But, yeah, it's it's super sad. And uh, sorry if this episode bumped I know. We, pr- we tried to bring some levity to it <laughs> yeah. um, because yeah. that dynamic duo, come on now. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. That could be, that could have been It could us, be though. us. Do you want to get in a, like, a lobotomy, <laughs> lobotomy van? What is it? The, the lobotomy van? We're the new, we're the new Freeman and Watts. <laughs> as, as, as I want to be the supervisor. Um, you do all the work and I'll just be like, yeah, I know what needs to be done. Cut here, cut there. Oh yeah. I bet Watts is like, I'm tired of this guy bossing me around. Yeah. But then if anything <laughs> bad happens, anything. I'll just blame it on you because you're the one that actually yeah. did it. So. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> Uh, if you're new to the podcast, this is mostly our dynamic. Yeah, unfortunately. Uh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and if this is your first episode, make sure you listen to our back catalog because everything is evergreen. Yep. You can listen to it anytime. Yep, yep. it is. And uh, make sure that you leave a review and subscribe because we really appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, we're in spooky season. Also, we got um, some merch that you can definitely, it's perfect for Halloween um, at mm-hmm. the Rooster Teeth mm-hmm. store. Skeletons. Yeah, skeletons are I definitely ramp up wearing our stuff during the holidays, the Halloween, <laughs> the holidays, my <laughs> holiday, the Halloween season. <laughs> yes. Um, no, good stuff in there. So go, go check it out. And then of course, um, yeah, we're on, we're on, uh, social media. Primarily we are trying mm-hmm. to ramp up our TikTok. So follow us there at just uh, 30 more minutes. Well, I need to go shut my brain off <laughs> I was for a while. Say, I'm going to go <laughs> like this. dissect my brain or just like stare at myself in the yeah. mirror. And I don't know, just think of things. I don't know what, but things. Yeah, same. Bye-bye for now, Jess. Bye-bye, Elise.